You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Writers Live on a very blustery evening. Um, so tonight we are thrilled to have David Taylor back at the Pratt, um, reading from and talking about his book, Cork Wars. After he speaks, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the Ivy Bookshop. Um, and I will be bringing a microphone around for the Q&A. We're recording for podcasts, so that just helps with the audio. Journalist David A. Taylor teaches science writing at Johns Hopkins University. He is the author of Soul of a People, the WPA Writers Project Uncovers Depression America, and Ginseng, the Divine Root, the Curious History of the Plant that Captivated the World. Cork Wars is a history involving World War II, immigration, and cork. It's the illuminating story about how cork, from cork oak forests around the Mediterranean, was a big deal in the mid-20th century. What began as a simple trade in bark and bottle caps quickly grew into a global drama with sabotage, espionage, and profiteering. As Douglas Brinkley writes, David Taylor's Cork Wars is a marvelous history about pre-synthetic times when large cork oaks were coveted far and wide. So please give a warm welcome to David Taylor. Thanks, Tracy. Uh, it's, and thanks to the, the Pratt for arranging this and for the, uh, um, for the library for hosting. It's a really a pleasure to be um, bringing particularly this story uh, to to Baltimore, uh, it's such a, a, a an incredible um, uh, story about a lot of things. Uh, of uh, it's it's a spy story, but it's also uh, involves immigration and nature and family and business. And to have these strands uh, connect and, and center on Baltimore, it's really rich to be able to to bring it here and to get uh, your responses to it. So. Uh, Thanks so much for, for that. Um, as, uh, as Tracy mentioned, uh, uh, well, first of all, I wanted to ask, um, I'm just curious, did, uh, did people hear the um, interview uh, on NPR last Thursday? And I'm just curious to, if there are a number of people. That, yeah, that's good to know. If, um, yeah, it was a, a good conversation uh, about that and uh, about how, as Tracy mentioned, the, the, uh, the story starts with uh, the fire uh, at the Crown Cork and Seal Factory in East Baltimore. And uh, this is um, just uh, to bring it back, it's uh, September 1940. This was a year before uh, the United States enters the war. Uh, and yet um, it's, uh, things are already very much um, unnerved. Uh, people are, Americans are on edge from, from all the headlines are about what's happening over in Europe um, Hitler is marching through uh, countries in Europe. There's headlines about the um, democracy, threats to democracy here in the U.S. And, and trade is in chaos um, as German U-boats have cut off uh, trade uh, across the Atlantic. And so imports are, are uh, upset. And that includes uh, imports of cork, uh, which, as Tracy mentioned, come from the, uh, the cork oak which grows just around the Mediterranean, mainly uh, Spain and Portugal. Um, so cork, um, I mean, you wouldn't think that would be a big problem if it's cork imports get cut off. But the, the idea was um, that cork was a big deal. I mean, the, the title of the book is Cork Wars. Why, what about cork made it important at that point? Well, besides uh, bottle caps, Cork was involved in a lot of parts of uh, American life at that point. Um, it was, in the age before plastic, it was kind of the go-to material. It was the, the plastic before we had 
cheap plastics. It was a way to seal and often insulate things that were um, used in, in the industrial processes. So uh, from the, for basically from the, it's the discovery of a type of composition cork, which is a granulated cork for forming that could fit to anything for industry from the, um, just around 1900 for the first half of the 20th century, it was a key material for industry. And so um, it was important for not just uh, uh, bottle caps. And, and who here remembers bottle caps that had slivers of cork in them? Yeah, it's, it, they, they stopped around 1970, I guess. But there was, a, uh, there was an exposure even I, growing up, would see these cork uh, slivers in bottle caps and wonder, uh, you know, what was behind that? Well, back then it was much more. It was... Uh, actually a material of modern life. It was, you could go to the New York uh, World's Fair and you would see uh, in several exhibits there of how the future looked and it included visions of, of cork. The, the, the roads were um, in through this uh, World of Tomorrow exhibit was paved with cork and, and rubber as a way to sort of be very um, smooth and resilient and uh, it was uh, a material that just absorbed a lot of um, potential for, for use. It was used by architects like Frank Lloyd Wright at Falling Water. Um, and so, uh, as a result, uh, because it was so useful, uh, America imported nearly half the world's production. And that carried over not just commercial use, but it was important in defense industry. And that's where uh, the fire became more of an issue. It had highlighted things that uh, really... Um, that. America was very dependent on this material that was all reliant on foreign uh, supplies. So in the months after the fire, there was uh, not just uh, rebuilding the company's effort to, uh, to be able to handle uh, um, industry, but also there was an FBI investigation. There were rumors of sabotage. In fact, in the, in the months around uh, and after the fire, there were other episodes that were considered sabotage, and then finally in, in June 1941, an actual Nazi sabotage ring was broken up and arrested by the FBI in Long Island. And uh, a man, a ringleader named Fritz Duquesne, um, was arrested, and, and they found, and, and the FBI was very proud to trot out evidence of um, threats to infrastructure, whether it was an electric... Uh, utility in upstate New York, there were dams in Pennsylvania, a lot of infrastructure along the Northeast, uh, and it, there was still um, questions of uh, fires at factories uh, like the Crown Cork fire that made uh, it question about what had happened and what threats, what, how was the industry still vulnerable to, uh, to sabotage. And um, so you would find uh, headlines like this one from the New York Times, linking cork and its use and uh, its importance to defense. So the book unfolds through the stories of three very different families. And um, a little over a decade ago, I spoke with someone, a member of one of the first families uh, who I who became involved with it, and. It was um, uh, Charles McManus Jr., the son of uh, the company owner, Charles McManus Sr., Crown, of Crown Cork and Seal. And uh, um, Charles McManus Jr. was at a, 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 a senior center in uh, Towson when we spoke, and it was 70 years after the fire, but he still had very clear memories of what that day was like. And, uh, and I'll just read a little bit uh, from what he told me uh, that's in the book. September was late in the cork harvest season, so the stockyard in Baltimore bulged with a year's supply, more stock than usual. With war in Europe and Nazi U-boats harassing merchant ships, Crown Cork, run by Charles's father, had bought as much as it could that season. The bales of cork rose in pyramids over 60 feet tall, as high as the Sphinx. His father was away on business, 
So Charles picked up the phone. When the man yelled, there's a fire in the factory yard, he felt the words in the pit of his stomach. By the time he got close to the stockyard, it looked like the sky was melting. The newspapers would later say that you could see its glow from Philadelphia and from Annapolis, a rocket's red glare on the horizon. It was the biggest fire anybody in the city could remember. Families sat out on the stoops and stared at the clouds. The, the streets looked like a theater set. At the railway sidings off O'Donnell Street, people climbed aboard flat cars as though there were grandstands for the Inferno show. Charles stood in his shirt sleeves, staring at the firestorm. His tie and collar, soaked with sweat from the rush and the September humidity, were suddenly baked dry within minutes. The heat was that intense. No matter which side of the blaze you were on, a hot wind came from its direction. The structure of cork itself unleashed more and more fuel. Each cell was packed with air like a tiny zeppelin. When a flame hit cork, the cell erupted and released more oxygen to ignite more cork. You literally couldn't put it out because of the cellular structure, Charles explained later. It burned for two full days, exhausting 400 firefighters before they finally got the flames under control. The fire ravaged nine acres of the stockyard and destroyed a half million dollars worth of cork. When daybreak came, Charles saw the scope of the disaster clearly. Sparks were still flying high and far, floating dangerously close to the standard oil tanks a few hundred yards away. Charles wanted to break the news on the phone to his father carefully, but there was no chance of that. The Ohio plant manager who answered the phone grew hysterical immediately. The older McManus took the receiver and said he would fly back the next day. So that, uh, that dramatic scene in this, the, the photo uh, shows how, um, I mean, the, the newspapers, the Baltimore Sun covered this for, for several days. It had aerial shots of the fire. It had uh, dramatic ones like this. And um, so in, in the months afterwards, uh, the government also became aware that this was a sensitive issue. And so you had the Commerce Department highlighting in a, in a report uh, months later uh, with dramatically saying, Cork goes to war. This is something that uh, where this foreign supply was, was putting it, us at risk. And so the government had to take a, a look at what was, was going on. A second family in the book uh, comes from uh, the neighborhood around the factory. And um, that's uh, an area known as uh, Highland Town. Frank DeCara's family, his parents came from Sicily in 1905. Um, they, uh, his, and, oh, before I say that, actually, um, another thing that uh, Charles McManus Jr. told me about was going with his father to uh, the, the um, places in Portugal and Spain where uh, um, the, uh, the court came from, and seeing the harvest uh, really firsthand, and seeing how trees that were very rustic and, and uh, seasonal uh, harvest really um, was done by these very skilled, you couldn't mechanize this kind of a, a thing where you could peel the cork off of the trees up to 10, 12 feet, and even off onto the branches. It was un done under the supervision of, you see, the uh, the Portuguese government official on the lower left uh, watching this kind of licensed procedure. This was a, uh, almost a ritual harvesting that required great skill and was not something that could be ramped up very quickly for the needs of uh, whether it was commercial industry or uh, defense uh, industry. So this was something that was going to be slow going. Anyway, back to, uh, to Frank DeCara's parents um, coming they settled in Highland Town after coming from Italy in 1905, and uh, I'll just read a little bit from the book introducing uh, their situation as well. For people who lived in Highland Town, the fire and the question of its origin filled them with dread. Many families had someone who worked at the factory, someone whose job was now endangered. Many of these had immigrated from Italy, Greece, or Germany. A generation before, Highland Town had been an outskirt known as Snake Hill, 
home to sausage factories and other messy businesses that city officials like to keep out of sight. At a house on Pratt Street, Frank DeCara, the youngest of six, had just turned 13. A slight boy with a fair complexion and limp black hair, Frank stood by his bed staring out the window that night, wondering about the source of the smoke and the strange glow. Occasionally he saw sparks shooting skyward. The scene stirred the kind of thrill and vague terror that he got from watching Boris Karloff's movies at the Rivoli. With war looming in 1940, families like the Dakaras came under as much suspicion as German Americans and nearly as much as Japanese Americans, all of whom were tarred by the taint of the Axis powers. That fall, politicians facing congressional elections decried fifth column insurgents. The FBI compiled a list of Italian Americans whom they felt should be rounded up when America entered the war. They would be the ones to pay the cost of Americans' fears. Frank was heading for high school and a different life from that of his parents. He knew that much. But that churning glow outside his window unsettled him. It simmered all night like a volcano. And the next night it was still there. Well, after the U.S. entered the war, intelligence agencies got involved in the months uh, afterwards. There, and this was actually a, a time when uh, new forms and agencies came about. And one of them was the uh, Office for Strategic Services, which sounds like a very bland and administrative agency. Uh, in fact, it was the spy agency before we had the CIA. Um, and so uh, it was started with all types of intelligence and, and uh, undercover work as its mandate. Uh, both initially in the US, in fact, there were OSS agents surveying, doing street surveys in Highland Town, trying to uh, get a gauge of popular opinion there. Um, and then also uh, looking at trade vulnerabilities and um, what could they find out about uh, business abroad and, and, and how to deal with that. And um, so less than a year after Pearl Harbor, um, there were uh, OSS recruiters in New York, and one of them met with the uh, international manager for Crown Cork and Seal. And uh, they had lunch together. They talked about how, they could, how the company could contribute to the war effort. Um, and the book goes into other dimensions, too, how, how they monitored ships in harbors and tried to get the crews involved. Uh, leveraging uh, relationships and trying to get uh, impress them for for information. In this case, it was uh, they were getting information from a, a higher level uh, official in the in the company, and uh, the international manager of Crown Cork recommended his uh, colleague, the the manager of the um, Portugal and, and Spanish uh, plants, a man named uh, Melcher Marza, for undercover work. Families around. The, uh, around the factory, getting back to the carriers, would continue to be, they would have to get some security, go through security to go to the plants that were coming up. And this is a, a wartime factory uh, making B-26 bomber wings uh, that uh, Frank DeCaro worked for as a, as, a, as a young man. And he was drafted. Uh, and again, showing the, the pressures on different Communities, and this was uh, uh, Frank's. In, within the Italian American community, there was the, was the question of loyalty, and and so uh, and so there were recruitments and enlistments uh, into the service, really higher uh, than the than average. Every uh, families uh, wanted to make sure that nobody questioned their uh, their allegiance, and so. Uh, uh, even this was before the rule that, uh, that the military wouldn't take all of, uh, of the sons of, of a family going into the war. Uh, all of Rosa de Cara's sons were taken into the, the service, um, and Frank went in as well. But to get to Melcher Marza uh, was in the, the third family involved in, the, in this story and how um, different families get caught up in the war. And, 
And I'll read just a, a little bit about um, Martha that you get earlier in the book is, is that he had left, uh, he's the one on the, on the right, uh, is a very sort of distinguished-looking man. He had left Barcelona in his 20s. Um, he had come to America for opportunity. Uh, he was basically been forced out of a, a family business uh, in, in, in Barcelona. Uh, and he uh, tried several different uh, ways of making work in, in New York. He, he, he uh, married an, a fellow, fellow Catalan uh, named Pilar. They settled in Brooklyn. And he went, went to work for a, a, uh, another cork company, uh, Crown, uh, uh, International Cork, and uh, was coming up through that, and, and that company got bought by Crown Cork. And, uh, and then so he got... Um, Long story short, the uh, the, the dep- depression came. He uh, the, the family lost their savings, and he really had to go back to work. Uh, and he didn't want to go to uh, work in, in Europe again, but uh, that was the only job open to him. That uh, uh, McManus Senior said, "Well, I have these two plants in Spain and Portugal. They're losing money. If you can come back and, and help out with them uh, and turn them around, you get a portion of the profits." So uh, I will uh, just. Uh, speak a little bit about that. Um, so he did. He uh, took his family to uh, to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He was uh, living and they were living in Seville, and uh, and then in the late uh, 30s, the beginning of 40s, uh, they were in in, uh, in Portugal in Lisbon. Gloria Marsa, uh, who is uh, the daughter, uh, she's. She started uh, her overseas uh, career as a little girl in the passport photo, um, and she uh, grew up in different phases uh, of their life overseas. And so she was a great resource in the story to find out what what had happened. Uh, But by 1941, um, Melchor Marzet and the whole family had come back because it was so risky to be in, in Lisbon at that point. The book goes into more about how that was. Uh, but at that point, he was back and first met with someone from the OSS. And I'll read a little bit from that. It was a simmering June day in New York. The man introduced himself as Van Halsey, and their conversation had the antiseptic air of a job interview. They covered Mars's childhood in Catalonia, his citizenship, and his employment record. They talked about politics and business in Spain and Portugal. Marza expressed his eagerness to help the Allies in any way he could. Halsey came away impressed by Marza, his intelligence and his conversation, saying he had, quote, quick responsiveness and an easy manner, unquote. Halsey saw a person of value. The agent introduced Marza to his OSS supervisor in a classified memo to Washington as a man who, quote, had been employed by the Crown Cork and Seal Company since 1934 as the manager of their properties in Spain and Portugal. He returned to this country in 1941 and is presently awaiting transportation to return on company business. The OSS memo continued, I believe that he could be of some use to our people out there, and particularly Gregory Thomas, the OSS chief of station for Spain and Portugal. Now, from years of seeing the Portuguese secret police close at hand, Marsa probably knew the risks to foreign agents in Lisbon. A Canadian intelligence agent had been shot dead in the Tivoli Hotel on Avenida de la Liberdade, and several agents of the German Abwehr had, dialed in, had died in Lisbon Harbor, likely killed by British agents. Crown Cork was well positioned for corporate cover. In addition to its natural interest in export channels, the company office in the heart of the city was just blocks from the port, and its factory in Setubal across the river was surrounded by port facilities and warehouses. Mars's work gave him access and legitimate reasons to visit these crucial places. From these observation points, he could provide valuable information on trade flows and relationships that tilted toward the axis. And this was at a time when actually officials even uh, OSS agents that might have been with the embassy couldn't actually even get into the countryside or go to the port because they were under surveillance. Uh, Portugal and Spain were neutral during the war, and so they were not going to help the Allies one way or the other. 
the McManuses, Marses, and DeCaras gravitated to the cork industry from different starting places. For these three families, owners, managers, and workers from three waves of immigration, cork proved a dangerous connection during the, the war. Each family would be tested, one in the war industry and its profits, one drawn into a web of spies and its dangers, and one plunged into the front lines. So I discovered the espionage trail uh, very much um, through digging. This was not something that had been uh, documented much in terms of many of the corporate connections to the OSS. In fact, uh, the OSS records were uh, declassified um, in the National Archives only about a decade ago. Uh, and they're still very much an analog operation. You can go into the um, military and OSS records room and uh, get help from a, a librarian and you have to write out your uh, request on pencil in pencil on a sheet and put it into a box and every hour or two the staff will pick up the requests and take it up to the stacks and eventually you will get a, a, a cart coming down with uh, your materials on, on, the, uh, on a cart and you can take the, them off the cart one box at a time. So it's not something, as much as uh, historical research has um, benefited from a lot of digitizing in the past 15 years, 20 years, uh, this is not, uh, there are still many stories like this that remain uh, uh, in, in these uh, collections that are worth digging out. So this is one case where uh, even the, the memo that I just read from, uh, from showing the OSS connection to Crown Cork and, and the direction uh, that to, to use uh, Melchior Marsa in Lisbon uh, was not something that was easy to find. Uh, once we got in, I was able to uh, turn up uh, both things about Melchior Marza and what he had uh, sent back, uh, including, uh, so once he was in Lisbon, there was suddenly in these, the, the um, cables coming back from, from the OSS, there was more information about how uh, Portuguese companies were dealing with both sides in the war. So you have uh, secret uh, communiques coming back saying, even with drawings like this one, saying, well, okay, this is a warehouse where it has a blind entrance where the company can deal to one exporter in one direction and to another one uh, in the other direction and um, without the other side knowing and without being detected. So it was a way of unraveling um, some of the black market uh, activity uh, and uh, you know, aware of, of how um, Hitler was supplying, getting supplies for the, for the war and, and learning how to isolate that. Another example came in a, in a communique, again, coming from the National Archives, where it's saying how a number of the Portuguese companies were dealing with um, um, the, the two sides of the war under the same company might deal with them under different uh, names, so different families, different people involved in the uh, uh, on the Portuguese side of saying uh, they might sell under one name to the British and under uh, another name to uh, to Germany. So the um, Crown Cork and, and other uh, companies in the in the industry were. Uh, caught up not only in uh, being asked to supply help with getting information, but also adapting their uh, work to uh, to the defense industry and to the creating the arsenal of democracy that uh, President Roosevelt talked about of like um, getting the material so uh, uh, produced manufactured enough so that uh, we could outproduce uh, the Axis powers. And so you have a, uh, a magazine uh, ad like this one explaining. Well, what is a cork company called, like Armstrong Cork doing, creating a, a, a bombs or or bombers or things like that? Another strand uh, of the story, of, particularly of the McManus story, that um, came up uh, was an innovation that uh, Charles McManus Senior uh, proposed to try to solve this dependence on. Uh, foreign supplies. And it was kind of a, a visionary idea of uh, launching a massive tree planting campaign uh, coast to coast, given that 
there was the possibility that cork oak trees, even though they were native to the Mediterranean, there might be enough uh, parts of the U.S. that were conducive to its habitat to, to growing here. In fact, it was supported by, in that by finding some in, uh, in California where they had actually been naturalized in the 1800s. And so he, uh, he started uh, sort of encouraging this whole campaign of growing uh, trees from coast to coast, getting politicians on board, uh, making it sort of a public-private uh, campaign. Uh, and so this intersection of nature and security and business uh, was uh, an unusual uh, manifestation. The idea that you could have... Um, uh, um, the, uh, the idea that you could uh, try to grow your way out of this kind of a, a, a scarcity crisis with something as uh, long-term as trees was quite uh, unusual. I mean, the, 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 the war would have to last quite a long time for uh, the, the trees to mature enough to be able to, to harvest the cork. But it was something that he felt was, was a, a, a possible thing. I'll just read briefly uh, from that description um, to give a sense. The notion of launching a private grassroots campaign as a response to the war, rather than giving speeches, made growing trees more appealing to the taciturn McManus. Even if the domestic planting effort never fully replaced cork imports, it would be worthwhile. On the other hand, if it failed, the growing project could tarnish crown cork and strike people as an oddball waste of money. With a project to adapt cork to American climate, McManus became convinced he could chart new territory. California could be the next frontier in that. His first inventions, back in his early New York days, had expanded the uses for cork. Maybe this phase of innovation would expand something else, the world's natural supply and people's appreciation of the material. Here in America, where nobody thought it could grow, a long shot. So amid the, the war, you have um, these efforts like an Arbor Day, particularly, from state to state. So this is a, a postcard from the Maryland Arbor Day when Governor O'Connor uh, took up a shovel and planted a, a cork seedling uh, along with, uh, you know, accompanied by bands and 4-H groups and uh, um, creating the idea that you could, with a forest resource, you could uh, foster self-sufficiency and even economic growth. I mean, these, these continued even after the end of the war, that uh, this could be something that really was an issue of national security, but also uh, environmental security and, and popular uh, resolve. Uh, so there were, it wasn't just Maryland, it was, this was, this one happened uh, you know, across the range, particularly around, uh, across the south, um, you find uh, in Louisiana, there was a, a, a big group of, uh, of plantings onto Arizona and California. It was, it was a patriotic effort in, uh, in a place you didn't expect to find it. And people, it, and kids involved who wanted to be part of the war effort who didn't otherwise know how to do it. I talked to uh, a, uh, a Baltimore uh, historian named John McGrain who um, remembered getting uh, the, the uh, acorns in, uh, for, for part of the campaign, uh, for uh, requesting to grow them. He planted them, and he took part. It was, he felt like it was something he could do for the war effort, even as a, as a 13-year-old. So um, here is, uh, the, again, the Arbor Day event at Annapolis with uh, Governor O'Connor. The family uh, continued to be involved with this. So um, we have uh, two of uh, McManus Sr.'s sons, Walter McManus on the left and uh, Charles McManus Jr. on the right, they were uh, deeply involved in this effort, uh, both in, in managing the company but also in this uh, popular effort to, to extend it to uh, across America. Well, I won't... Uh, you'll have to read the, the book to find how these threads uh, come together and, and, and pay off, but... Uh, just to give you a sense that there was, Cork continued to be an issue of national security even after the war, even as plastics did come up and begin to uh, 
replace uh, cork in, in American life, there were still, uh, during the Cold War, issues of um, where, where cork was a, continued to be an issue of national security. So you have this CIA report about cork uh, and the, uh, the Soviet bloc. And in fact, they found uh, Stalin had been for decades trying for the same reasons of national security to grow cork in the Caucasus and get to make uh, the Soviet Union uh, self-sufficient in cork. So this was this um, this issue of uh, natural resources getting in service of society, but also getting in the way of of uh, national security. We find again and again. We see it now with items like uh, um, rare earth elements, things that are in very small amounts used in in electronics, um, that uh, and smartphones and, and screens um, that almost uh, completely come from China at this point. So with the trade tensions, trade war with, with China gets these elements of nature and uh, business uh, caught up. So there's a big research element now trying to see, well, how can we replace these uh, foreign um, sources of rare earth minerals with things now? So the, these issues of uh, within this, the uh, the story keep keep uh, coming up both in terms of immigration, in terms of trade and environment, and also we still find uh, actually survivors of this episode in the landscape now. So uh, we find trees planted by the Manus Corp project from South Carolina to California. This was actually uh, this photo comes from Davis, where a number of photos, uh, a number of trees were planted by the team in. Uh, who were connected with the UC Berkeley, um, Davis, California, in Sacramento. Then also there were, were cork trees. You find them in uh, in South Carolina. Uh, sometimes the families don't know the history of what uh, what got those trees there. But uh, for example, these are the, the grandchildren of uh, the woman who, as a as a young girl, planted the, this cork tree. And she too, uh, Glenda Owens, was was curious about how this this story uh, came. Unfolded, and so it's. I'll, I'll open it up to to questions and, and comments now. But I just wanted to kind of confirm that this type of story. Um, sometimes you don't see it in the moment. Many people have said that uh, they didn't know, even though they were alive then, that they didn't know this this piece of it, uh, of how uh, national security was involved with this, uh, tied up with this fire, with this industry, and how it unfolded. Often we don't have the materials uh, until till later to find out what uh, had been undercover. And so I, I owe a great debt to the, the families who shared their story with me and uh, sort of bring this story that's both of, of Baltimore then but also of America now uh, to fruition. So I, I thank them and I thank you all for coming tonight. I can bring the microphone to you if you have questions. Perhaps I missed, did what was the use of the cork in WW2? So it was used in everything from um, like windshield glazings to, to sealant to gaskets. I mean, any engine gasket that was, they didn't use plastic at that point. They were very thin strips of this granulated uh, cork that would be um, seal, sealed for engines, for insulation, for in, uh, in bombs. So it was used uh, in, in tanks, uh, in trucks, and in, in, in the planes, uh, and in ships. So it was anything that you might have a, a plastic sealant for now, uh, often it was a, like a, a cork uh, strip of gasket then. Did the uh, Army Intelligence School and Center at Fort Halliburg emerge during any of your research? Um, not that school. No, there were a number of, uh, uh, to my knowledge, I mean, there were members from the, the business who were recruited into training um, for OSS and for other secret army op operations, but um, I didn't find a direct connection uh, in this story to that. Was there, do you know of one? No. I thought I was uh, trained there. Ah, so uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's why this is fascinating. Uh, 
Uh, was the fire at the Rooker Terminal by any chance in Baltimore? The, uh, the fire was actually at the uh, on Eastern Avenue, and I found that uh, that plant, uh, the right so right near the the port where the so the cork would come into port. There are the silos there, and then there was the the stockyard um, there. So at, at uh, around uh, and Next, uh, how, how often can you be on the cork? You can peel a cork every uh, eight to ten years. Once you've, once it's reached, uh, once it's, once you can, you can start when it's twenty-five years old. They're trying to actually make it uh, younger, but yeah, you can peel it every eight to ten years. And it's the only species where you can do that and not kill or hurt the tree. So it's a, it's a remarkable renewable resource that way. Yeah. How did you find out? Uh, what got you interested in this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it was sort of uh, stepwise. I, I was working on another project, my earlier book, actually on the 1930s and the WBPA writers, and I was in a collection where I came across an article about this, uh, the, the, the tree growing campaign initially, and the idea of a, uh, a tree campaign for a particular tree species and to grow it at wartime that it would contribute to the war effort was just sort of a question that... Uh, um, surprised me. So I, in the course of that, uh, I think eventually I, 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 I um, located uh, uh, Charles McManus Jr. And, in, and it was that conversation actually and how he said that it was the fire that um, caused them to go on um, allocation, as he said. It's basically to become a, an item of national uh, quotas and, uh, and national security. That's when it started to piece together that there was more of a story here. But even then, uh, I didn't find out about the, um, the, the, the spy element until I was able to do more research at the National Archives and then find the, the, the family of uh, Melcher Marza to really f see how their life was and how, how because um, he didn't tell them much about it, but the, through clues, uh, his daughter Gloria had figured that it was unusual access that he had to government officials and to be able to travel when nobody else was able to travel, um, that uh, that we found uh, what was happening. So the uh, the cork, the, we saw the, the tree where it looks like the cork just peeled off whole. Right. Was there a tool that they used, or did it just peel off whole? No, that's a really uh, interesting question. The the equipment for cork harvesting has evolved, so they they have several um, specialized. Uh, Practically surgical, like knives for cutting the cork in a way that doesn't uh, hurt the inner cambium. Um, but it's uh, yeah, they have several types of both making that initial slice and then left prying it off. And then uh, if they could do it skilled enough that you can pry it off and, and basically it looks like you have the lower part of a tree standing by itself, even though it's just the shell. It's like uh, you know, like the skin of an apple. You could just get it off. How did you, um, well, maybe it was your final choice, but the character of Frank Takara, how did you um, come to him and his family? Yeah. Uh, actually, I, I came to meet Frank through a, um, through a, a writer friend, a Baltimore writer, Rafael Alvarez, and uh, he uh, put me in touch. He'd done a, sh a short piece about Frank for the Baltimore City paper, and I, so I knew that... Uh, uh, Frank worked for Crown Cork and Seal later in his career, but I didn't know, and he barely knew that he had worked for Crown Cork during the war because there was no sign on the factory. Um, when it's a wartime factory, you don't know that. Uh, but um, but he, you know, through the course of a number of uh, conversations over five years, uh, learned a lot and how his story wove in. But that's how I found him. We hear now about scarcity of cork in contemporary times. Um, and we know that some of the trees that the McManus family planted survive to this day in the States. What about the efforts of other countries, like the Soviet Union, planting cork around the castle? Um, have any of those other projects survived? And have you ever seen cork harvested yourself? Uh, well, it was it, the, uh, the Soviet experiment did not work out well. They, despite uh, decades of planting cork, um, it did not. There was not enough in the uh, 
the range of its climate range to be able to uh, support it. So that, that failed. Other countries, uh, North Africa has, um, and is native to Algeria and Morocco, and some, there have been efforts supposed to um, preserve it. There's a new appreciation of the biodiversity of cork oak forests, and so there's a, there are a number of efforts, both by World Wildlife Fund and others, to um, extend uh, you know, better protections to cork oak forests. And companies uh, like the leading uh, cork company uh, in Portugal, uh, Amarim Cork, has done a lot towards um, revitalizing the, uh, the, the planting of, of cork and making sure that, um, given that there's, for, for a long time, there was a declining use of cork as, against plastic. Now it's, it's seeing a resurgence, both as a more um, eco-friendly uh, material and, um, and one that also provides a, a living for a lot of uh, families in, in, in areas where it grows. Uh, I haven't seen it harvested directly. I've been, uh, I've seen it um, just after the harvest. Uh, when I visited Portugal, it was just after the fall harvest, so I see, saw a lot of the trees that had been uh, shorn and saw, uh, spoke with a lot of people who were processing it and flattening it out and getting it ready to export. It really is a remarkable uh, industry that has you know, uh, kind of taken forward from, from the ancient Roman times uh, this this item that uh, continues to be part of our lives. Any other questions or? Now's your chance. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to ask you what's at the location where the cork factory was in Highland Town. Yeah, it's right um, at O'Donnell Street and. Uh, between O'Donnell, so if you go there, you can still see it now. If you go out Eastern Avenue, you'll dip down at an underpass, uh, and you'll see off to the right the uh, the factory. It's now there are a bunch of artist lofts uh, there, uh, and um, so it's still. In fact, on Open Doors Baltimore a couple of years ago, we were able to able to go through and sort of see in the compound and see what's uh, where people are. Both the parts that are being used, but also uh, there are many part buildings within the compound that are, are not being used now too. But you can see in the distance the the port and the the silos where the cork uh, was stored. Yeah. Um, after the fire and the realization this could be a security issue, did the government and core companies, did the companies in their own you know, their own sense, say, hey, this is, we're doing something that's vital, and we have to have guards to protect it, or more fire, you know, services to uh, stop potential disasters again, especially in light of being wartime. There was a lot of, uh, yes, there was a huge effort to boost security, both in the port, they got the, the port facilities, got the volunteers and trained them in how to uh, patrol for, for security companies uh, also uh, did boost security. They didn't always know what to be looking for. In fact, sometimes there would be, um, you know, if they would, you could be, uh, a, a worker could run into trouble by either working too fast or too slow. Um, there was such a heightened, nerves were such on edge that um, it was not the most systematic uh, method of security. But yeah, there was uh, a lot of effort by both companies to say, well, what can we do? Um, there's, in the book, you'll see more about like the company have meeting with people from the, um, the Department of War and, and what they can uh, you know, build, how they can, can coordinate better. And, and um, there were you know, groups of businessmen who would coordinate on how to, uh, you know, at the local level, uh, uh, how to, to work together how to best uh, deal with the, with the war period. Did they ever find out the etiology of the fire? And what exactly did they do with this plant? Uh, what did they do with the plant before that, when it was caught fire? Well, that's, it's a, um, Crown Cork and CEO made bottle caps and containers at the point. So they were, uh, it was not that that would be necessarily um, you know that the operations of the, the plant would be uh, an issue of national security, but the cork in the stockyard was uh, a, a huge 
um, stockpile of resource for this uh, industry that was was sensitive. So, so it was. Find out why the fire they studied it, and in fact, they were uh, finding the book. There were uh, informants who thought um, that it could be connected to uh, to a, a factory fire in New Jersey. Uh, the investigation went on for a while, and a number of leads went cold. The fact is that uh, with you know, fire forensics then, it was not the same as it is, is now. So often a, a factory fire like that would uh, consume uh, all the evidence of, of who said it. So uh, uh, for a long time, the, just the question of, of how it started uh, just lingered as that. Last question. I think it would make a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think it would be a... <laughs> Any volunteers would be... Yes. Yeah, no, I think that the, the, um, the fact that no one strand of the story kind of captured it all, but I, uh, hopefully that the, through the, the, um, the three families together, their story tells a much bigger, bigger piece of, of American life. And a lot of it is... Uh, uh, reflects what um, what Baltimore offers. It's interesting. So a number, I think several people here may have uh, worked for for Crown Cork at some point. So uh, uh, if you could raise your hands. And <laughs> well, thank you all for coming. And, and uh, thanks. Have a good night. Thank you so much, David, for sharing your work. And again, thank you all for coming out. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.